I'm Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds, the show that takes you over the horizon and beyond borders to bring you the global thinkers, innovators, and troublemakers whose ideas challenge the world as we know it. Bondi Beach today with Ross Dawson, uh, who is a futurist, an entrepreneur, a best-selling author, and uh, well, I guess someone who's we've, we've spoken to, you know, on the circuit for some time, haven't we? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so it's uh, oh, 15 years ago at I, least that uh, known each other, I, and I, I think suppose so. a little bit of a parallel evolution of our careers, and uh, and, and I like that we're both uh, people who seem to migrate back to Bondi. Absolutely. Although I'm amazed you sort of run your, your global business out of here because I always find when I'm in Bondi, it's like this cognitive gravity well. <laughs> yeah. It takes an inordinate amount of energy to actually try and think of something productive. It's interspersed with the spending time in the surf and there's incredibly talented people in Bondi, a lot of great ideas and uh, it's, so I find it's the best place for me to live as an inner city, but where I can immerse myself in nature and in the form of the surf <laughs> and you know, just feel stimulated by that and you know I can always just uh, hop on a plane to see some uh, some other part of uh, humanity. <laughs> it is funny though when you pick up the local newspaper it feels like you're on a uh, reading the resort island news. <laughs> but uh, you know I, I, I think one of the areas that we're both interested in and it's something I'd love to kind of tease out with us today is this whole subject of the future of work and automation and um, really the path to what the cognitive enterprise might look like and, uh, and this is something I know you've been researching as well lately. Yeah, so I spent a lot of time on, on the future of work. I suppose the future of organizations generally has, has always been at the heart of my interests and I, now that we're seeing the work change dramatically. and. You know, taking a step back, you know, it's the foundation of a vast amount of my work is the intersection of technology and humanity. How is technology changing who we are? And work is fundamental to our identities in terms of you know, obviously how we make a living, in terms of uh, what we are, how we you know integrate into society. And we have seen that change, the nature of work change over time, and arguably the future of the history of humanity is that of people being replaced by machines from the plow through to the spinning jenny through to a whole array of other technologies over the last decades now this is moving so much faster with a lot of very you know what we consider very high level tasks being replaced by machines in terms of making judgments in terms of having emotional capacity to engage with people to even be therapeutic so but this is odd in a way because people often say that it's just going to be the high frequency routine jobs that will be automated but when we're talking about judgment calls and emotional engagement this is not the typical area of automation that people imagine yeah and this is what just what we are getting to so you know a classic example is uh, Paro the robot seal out of Japan which is a you know, it's, it feels like a little very uh, baby seal that you can pat, but it responds emotionally to you, and it's very effective in therapy in terms of bringing people out of themselves and engaging more in the outside world. 
And in terms of judgment, we're seeing more and more domains where there is sufficient data where machines can essentially start to make as good or better decisions than humans in a way because they're not clouded by all of the other thoughts or perspectives they yeah, have and they have no, data to use that. There was an interesting piece in the Harvard Business Review a couple of months ago about um, cognitive noise and decision making. And I think essentially what they argued was that um, human beings, experts in particular, are incredibly unreliable when it comes to making consistent judgment calls. Yes. You know, whether you're uh, diagnosing a, a biopsy or trying to value a property, you'll come up with completely different judgments on different days depending on the weather or something else. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Uh, whereas right. algorithms are incredibly consistent. Yeah, and they, they want. Algorithms will never have as much data as humans. I mean, we are able to sense far more than we can even imagine and use that as, as what we can call intuition, but is actually, in a way, a data uh, filtering and assessing. I think a very interesting example is used by uh, Andrew McAfee of MIT, who talks about parole board decisions and essentially saying that the data shows that machines make better decisions at whether people should get parole from jail than human committees do. <laughs> and this is something, arguably something, where you can understand. Is, is somebody reformed? You know, are they ready to integrate into society? And uh, you know, apparently it shows that uh, algorithms are better than humans at making these kinds of decisions. So what when you think about that, what, what, what do you think will be left for us? I mean, what are the things that humans will ultimately be, will remain better at than machines? So what I always point to is three domains, expertise, creativity, and relationships. Right. And the intersection of, of all of those, so expertise where we know a lot about a particular domain, but also in its context. So this is not just domain expertise, but also domain expertise and understanding the, the meaning of it, how it fits relative to other domains, or how it is a human domain, actually being able to uh, understand a specific area. Creativity, to be able to imagine and create, to come up with new ideas and perspectives and art is fundamentally human. And relationships, being able to have empathy, understand what it's like to, to be someone else, to be able to uh, evoke and to also to to inspire and to change others. And, and just on a, on a relatively trivial note, you know, I, personal trainers are not going to be replaced by robots because we're not going to do another 10 push-ups if a robot tells us to. Whereas if a human tells us to... Even, we, even if it threatens to let the Well, there's other, there are other ways to go about it. So these, these are the domains where humans are extreme. That's why I believe that our education system has to focus as much as anything else on creativity on how it is we foster our imaginations to be as wide-ranging as possible. So, so actually, uh, the, the strange consequence of this algorithmic revolution is that we actually may need less STEM education. Potentially, <laughs> potentially. I think that, that is part of the expertise piece, is that STEM areas, and we will need to know more because we need to design the new technology to do that. But as important, or even potentially more important than technologies, is the design of those technologies. So in the center of those expertise, creativity, and relationships, I would put human-centered design. Right. How is it that we create a world, a technology, de devices, artifacts, houses, in a ways that may are friendly for humans? Machines can't do that. Only humans understand humans well enough to actually design 
anything from how an app works through to you know how it is that we find a job to how it is we uh, interact with the health system these are things which are are about humans and designing that world and making that better for humans is you know, deeply human capability and where there'll be immensely more work in the future than there is today. I, I wonder about some of that though. I mean, you know, you're seeing um, uh, architecture firms like NBBJ now using algorithms to design workspaces. Uh, essentially, they're, they're, they're taking a lot of the so called creativity and just applying data to it. You know, observations of how people actually work and letting the algorithm complete it. Yes. So I wonder how romantic we are really about our own creativity. Uh, uh, you know, if you've got computers who can cut movie trailers, who can make music, who can, uh, some say, create art. I mean, maybe the one thing that they can't do is create things that are truly novel. It's, I mean, this is a philosophical debate yeah. as to, you know, can computers be creative? Yes, absolutely, they can be creative. And, you know, I think, you know, one example is, as you say, being able to, just, you know, create spaces that are good for humans based on data patterns. That's certainly creating something which wasn't there before. This idea of generative design, where you say this is the outcome we want to be able to use multiple iterations to be able to create something which fulfills that function and in a way which no human would conceive of but actually is uh, efficient and effective so these are the and so yeah I, I but again it comes back to design process so if we're creating a positive future for humans and where technology serves us rather than is yeah you know, is has a negative impact we need to design work so that it's, it's it is designed to so that technology and humans complement each other we don't say how is it that we replace this job with the technology but rather how do we create more value by combining the capacity of the technology machines with the capacity of humans and where we look to augment ourselves we to augment our creativity to augment our ability to relate to others right, amongst other it, things it becomes a tool rather than a replacement for the artist or the, yeah and it's yeah. it's a frame of mind it's a way of how we approach it how we think about it and i think there are many organizations at the moment which are looking at the automation as a wonderful way to replace headcount and that may be entirely valid for some organizations but i think for most organizations this should be about how do we use this technology to create new value in new ways uh, you know to use all of the human resources we have and it's tr possibly some of those people will not be able to function you know contribute enough in this uh, change world others may need training to get to that point where they can work effectively with the machines but it is uh, this journey of how is it that we humans and technologies work together that's the reality of the world we live in it's funny if you think how this might play out though because a lot of the potential aspects of work that are going to be automated which is around high level judgment calls analysis data crunching was actually done by people who paid relatively well and the kind of the very human level jobs which is about talking to other humans generally the, the support center so it'd be kind of strange if you're actually taking all your high level executives and retraining them to talk to people in the call center <laughs> they're probably not gonna be so happy with their uh, downgraded status <laughs> no i mean there's no change there uh, you know for individuals and otherwise there's positives and negatives i mean though in fact I actually believe that customer service will be very significantly automated and I think that part of that will be driven by 
uh, emotion detection. Right. So if you get a machine which goes has experienced 1,000, 10,000 unhappy customers and is able <laughs> to build out the patterns and they're picking up from their tone of voice, their language, you know, intonation, uh, amongst other things, if it's a voice call, to ensure what is it that they are feeling and what a response works effectively. Saying, well, this seems to be a particular yeah, emotional state. This is a particular personality behind it. And having tried a hundred different things, this is in fact the word sequence and intonation which best which calms them down. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah. And where you might not be able to exceed the very best customer service representative in doing that, you might be able to be better than the vast majority of people in who can in actually making people happy on a phone call right and you could probably get that best customer service agent and get them to start training the system yeah though i think a lot of it is where it's beyond the understanding of that customer service respect because that that person is is emotional you know they're emotional they're empathetic they actually relate to that other person not necessarily in ways that they can express so they can they can be uh, the machine can observe them I don't think they could necessarily be explicitly trained yes but once they can start to see well actually this person is getting consistently better results across these different different situations or what are they doing which the other humans are not doing and this is where as we start to be get more fluid voice conversations with machines that they will be able to uh, you know, be able to be often very effective at emotionally engaging, amongst other things, unhappy uh, customers, which is a significant part of customer service. People talk a lot about this natural language interface with technology as being sort of a key step on this digital transformation journey towards a cognitive company. Um, do, do you believe that? I mean, do, do, why is it so important, do you think, that we stop typing into screens and start just almost talking to like a Siri or Alexa in, in the organization? Does it change our, our kind of construct? It does, though I think I think of it broadly as simply better interfaces. And so it is, you know, until now we really have had keyboards, mice and screens and not a lot else. So now we say, well, what is the full wealth of ways in which we can interact and interface with machines? And voice is a very natural one, which is what we are used to using. Gestures are actually extremely important, where we can have both uh, specific gestures to control screens or ideas. And you know, to a certain degree, when we wave our hands in the air, there is there is a certain amount of meaning. Uh, Especially for Italian. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and not only that, but the, these have become part the meaning which uh, computes things and we are moving well, we already have and will rapidly get rapid improvement in thought interfaces other things are also in fact facial recognition to be able to detect different expressions and uh, you know micro changes in our facial expression uh, is an important part of it and eye gaze tracking is very important as well it's actually going to take our full concentration not to communicate with technology <laughs> well that's well we, we won't be able to we won't be able to not communicate with technology they will be able to pick up if we are annoyed so imagine that where you, you're dealing with a, a an application and it detects you're annoyed and then changes in response to that, that that's probably a good thing uh, so, or if you, know, you can tell, oh, you're in flow, all right, well, it's not going to change anything. These are the things where, you know, we will move far, far beyond that. But voice is just a, you know, fundamental and, you know, very valuable and useful form of interaction. And it's not just the words. 
it is the intonation, it is the expression, it is the yeah. pacing. All of these are very meaningful, carry a lot of uh, meaning to other humans and will do to machines as well. You, you can see how that would that would change the way we think about jobs in that you know there's probably all kinds of time for someone who is wondering you know how's our division doing in Brazil right and that's something you would give like an analyst to go and think about and you come back with PowerPoint charts Excel yes but that's something that now becomes just something that you can vocalize to a speaker on your desk yes and you get an answer well that's yeah we're getting to that point and that's where as well where that other part this we're talking about how do we provide information to computers we get information from computers and I, I believe a big part of that is more and more in terms of 3d and spatial and virtual reality augmented reality or in terms of the actual the, the deliverables yeah that's right yeah. where we can actually understand things better than a uh, a few colored bars in a you know, document on a screen into something which is and, and different people have very different cognitive and learning styles. Processing and so again, you're not, not going to present information or data for decision making in the same way to all individuals. Yeah. And we can start to actually fine tune how it is that we present uh, the interface to the data or information organization in a way that is best for that individual. I think our ability also to understand and interrogate that information will become more important. I, I saw um, an article that Satya Nadella wrote recently and, and he was uh, referencing uh, algorithmic accountability. Like It's going to be very important that these systems are transparent and that people are smart enough to be able to understand how these systems came up with these recommendations or thoughts. Because if it's just a black box and we're blindly following it, we're going to fall the same trap of biases and prejudices and bad decisions. So this is one of the big questions and issues in, in artificial intelligence. Uh, can you explain a, a decision by the machine? And it's and then we have to be different decision types where it's more or less important. So for example, in parole decisions, that's something where you would want to be able to articulate in some form. This is why this per we feel this person is is okay for parole. It can't just be a, a, a black box machine yeah. learning algorithm. However, machine learning by its very nature is in fact is becomes more and more like a black box. There will be a large proportion of our technologies where we will not necessarily be able to explain. So there does become a trust in the machine. Yeah. And this is, again, if we look at the, the future and the increasing role of technology in our lives, one of the massive variables is our trust in technology. And, I, and in fact, I think it's very interesting. It's fascinating how much we trust technology. I think even those people that call themselves technology skeptics, in fact, do trust the technology will work. Yeah, they know it'll break down sometimes, but they do implicitly trust technology around us. And I don't doubt that that faith will be called into question. Well, every time we go on a plane, I mean, yeah. I think one of the reasons they don't let you in the jump seat anymore is because you actually realize the pilots don't do anything. <laughs> it's just a couple of guys sitting reading a newspaper. <laughs> That's right. With lots of dials around yeah. them. And, and that's right. But I think also we all understand when you get in the plane that there is a massive amount of technology, all of which is, has to work well for us to get there safely. And there's not many people you know, that, that choose not to go on planes just because they think the technology might not work. They're, because it does consistently work. Do you think the answer is just that we blindly trust it, or, or do you think 
we need to train people almost to be able to, I guess, understand what's going on under the hood. I mean, I mean, rather than learning Excel, do we need to understand like you know Bayesian theorems and you know <laughs> and, and complex algorithms? Well, technology literacy is is a fundamental literacy now, of course. Uh, though I think we all should probably be somewhat more skeptical uh, around our reliance on technology than we are. We are so deeply reliant on technology. There was um, a few years ago there was a solar flare that if it had been two weeks different could have wiped out much of the electronics on the planet. Right. And there it is feasible that we will at some point uh, have uh, much of our electronics wiped out. So we do should be conscious of how much we do rely on technology you know, and also to build some fail safes but uh, it's it is concerning almost how much we do rely on technology if you, if you were to imagine um, what a 21st century company looks like I mean we we often talk around the edges of it that we'll be using better collaboration systems and uh, natural language interfaces and maybe cooler designed offices but what do you think are the parts that really matter I mean if we were to look back 50 years time ago how strange those 20th century companies are what do you think we would point at we're generally moving to more fluid organizations and that's on many levels one is the boundaries between who's inside and outside the organizations and being able to a contingent, contingent workers and freelancers yeah well and experts so just being able to draw on the right talents wherever they are and draw those into organizations also in terms of job roles the fact that somebody has a title you know to these boxes where people have a particular job and that's what they expect to do as opposed to bringing all of who they are to the organization and be able to fluidly adapt and there's essentially two things that need to happen for us to be able to have this more fluid organization which actually can tap more of the potential of people to contribute to the organization and one is well three things one is the restructuring of the organization's functions so that we moving away from the boxes and you know, you know rigid reporting structures you know some of the technological enablers so you can have this fluid fluid flow and understanding where people have capabilities and to be able to match them with where they are needed real time and and of course in culture and attitudes both in organizations of individuals in moving beyond the uh, you know come in and do my job and I know each day what I'm going to be doing as opposed to uh, having a lot of change and building organizations that can be um, where the individuals and the overall culture can be comfortable and thrive on that. How do you do that at scale? I mean, I, when you have a startup of 10 people, you can sort of see how everyone can just pitch in. Um, and you sort of have a sense of what people's capabilities are. But when you've got 1,000 or 10,000 people and you don't have jobs or job titles, what, what do you think the, 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 the structure is in order to keep everyone focused? It does require... So, you know, there are only a handful of examples where this... Uh, appears to work well. Things like uh, W.O. Gore and uh, Morningstar are some of the most cited examples where essentially they are, you know, the employees create everything as they go. And, you know, there are some titles and roles, but essentially people do what needs to be done. And these are, these are large organizations. Yes, they are. Yeah. Extremely large, in fact. 
of, uh, particularly Morningstar, which is the largest tomato processing co uh, company in the world. Right. So, is it a co-op? No, it is, uh, I believe it just has a you know, traditional oh. organizational structure, yes. So these, and so I guess the question is these, I believe there'll be more and more of these kinds of organizations. The question is the degree to which they will be there, whether the efficiency and effectiveness of these kinds of organizations so far exceeds that of traditional organizations that the old ones will cease to exist. But having been following this space for a very long time now, I, I guess I've seen a lot of change in how organizations work, but I also don't, have, don't see that traditional organizations are going to be put out of business in the next decade or two. Um, you know, given they'll, they'll still be moving forward, they may not be moving fast enough, and they may lose ground, but they're not going to disappear entirely. Well, you've got so those two models at either end of the spectrum of a very hierarchical organization that sort of manages to digitize itself, and then you've got the very decentralized model of Morningstar. But there's another model, I think, that's coming up as well, which is maybe less utopian, which is, in a way, Uber, you know, because they've got, like, millions of employees or however many people are driving for them uh, with a, I guess, a, a kind of an intimate relationship, but essentially being managed by an algorithm. Yes. Um, and it's kind of, it's a very flat organization, but it's also quite authoritarian in another sense because everyone's behaviors are very much being measured and monitored and, I guess, pushed by technology. So in this case, it is, I mean, it, it, it is a very fluid a mar yeah, yeah. bargain sense that any driver can stop or start whenever they want. It's and not when, very when powered though, in no, some sense. No, no it's not. Yeah. But it is fluid in the sense that you're matching supply and demand real time. And you know whatever su supply you have of drivers is matched whichever demand you have in, in whatever way works. So it is fluid, but they are, they are very specific job roles. Yeah. You drive a car. There's no, <laughs> no, there's no, no Uber driver is ever going to be the CEO of Uber. Let's put it no, that way. No, and they're also never going to be, well, actually maybe not never, but they they aren't generally looked to to provide you know, process improvement ideas or no, other things which like drive the organization. You know, where, you, where they kind of deliberately put you on the front line and then you can work your way up. Yeah, that's right. So, but one of the things about um, I mean, Uber is, the, is that it, it's yeah, the most well-referenced example of platforms and so this is as we see the rise of platforms uh, you know most obviously uber and airbnb and freelancer and upwork and uh you know many other of these uh, work platforms you know they they are represent a large portion of the where the economy is shifting today these platforms that link and create value by connecting others but one of the implications of these structures is that it starts to augment and accelerate the polarization of value. Yeah, well, it, it feels to me like neo-feudalism in the sense that you have the uh, owners of capital, the aristocracy, and you have the kind of the people the other end of the spectrum who are doing bit work that's being handed out to them, not now by your, you know, your royal guard, but by an algorithm. <laughs> Yes, yeah, and I think that that's, and so when I look at the future, I created a future of work landscape some time ago, and one of the elements which I put in there, not as 
saying it was a desirable outcome, but uh, just the reality is that of the polarization of value, which is driven in a networked economy. So if we're in a networked world, as we, you know, we have power law or similar type distributions, and the reality is that the forces of technology in as a foundation of work are polarizing value. They are driving, we have seen a, a vast growth in high-paid jobs, we've seen a vast growth in low-paid jobs. We have, in fact, seen fewer and fewer jobs in the middle. And so this is something we need to observe and to understand and to take steps to mitigate, because these are functions of the, this technologically-based world. Yeah, and it's not an easy... I mean, I don't think giving everyone a universal basic income really addresses this. No, <laughs> it's, it's, it is a an element of what might provide a better world. It's, it's mitigating the extent of the, the divide, but you know, these basic incomes are not you know, barely even subsistence. Uh, nobody's really talking above that, which you can complement perhaps with you know, some of the uh, gig economy type work, but it doesn't create a way to, to move beyond that. And we seek meaning through our work, yeah. you know, to be valued as a person, individual, and getting your basic income because you're alive does not give people a sense <laughs> of value or, or worth in themselves. No. And that's, this is, it is, uh, this polarization is not just of uh, financial value, it's it, also it's of a, social a, value. And meaning and context, I think it's very true. And then if you look at the Industrial Revolution, I think one of the biggest casualties of that was people's sense of work. And that you had a very efficient structure when you take people out of the fields and you divide their tasks. But the more you divide a task into its kind of minuscule little part, the less context people have for why they're doing that work. Yep, that's right. You get rid of craftsmen and you just create essentially uh, people doing one highly specialized little thing. Yeah, and that's so, yeah, arguably going beyond the assembly line, which we had in the middle of the last century to, you know, we have, we have moved to a work of greater meaning than we did since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. But there is, you know, real dangers that that can be eroded. Well, listen, Ross, it's great, uh, great catching up. It's always fun hanging out in Bondi. Uh, thank you for being on the show. It's a real pleasure, Mike. Great to see you. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash betweenworlds.